symphony orchestras in the United States that started to have musicians audition behind the curtain in the 70s. And that dramatically increased the fraction of women in our major symphony orchestras from about 5% in the 70s to now almost 40%. So that's, in that sense, kind of a beautiful intervention. And a number of other organizations, including the UK government, for example, now uses this technique and removes names and identifiers from people's resumes to make sure that they focus on people's qualifications, competencies, and not what people look like. So that's a perfect example of an equality intervention, right? It creates more equal access, not perfect, but more equal access to work. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. I am so lucky because twice a year, I get to attend the Harvard Kennedy School's Women's Leadership Board meetings that support the Women and Public Policy program. At these meetings, I get to sit down and have quality conversations with our next guest, her extraordinary colleagues, and other thought leaders and business leaders. Iris Bonet is the Albert Pratt Professor of Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is also the co-director of the Women and Public Policy Program. My goal for today's show is to make you feel like you are at a Women's Leadership Board meeting with me and Iris, and we're discussing how to close gender gaps over lunch or dinner. For that reason, I started my conversation with Iris a bit differently. I shared some observations I've made since joining the board. Don't worry, we still have a call to action for you and we'll get to Iris's origin story. I have to say that for me, joining the Women's Leadership Board that is focused on supporting the Women in Public Policy Program, I think has fully expanded my understanding of the importance of women in power, of the work that we have to do. And it has given me a new sense, I think, of purpose and mission. I had it, but I think what it has done for me, it has allowed me to kind of put the work that I do in a corporate setting in a very different perspective. And what I notice about your work, 
and what you're able to do, Iris, and the wonderful team that you have with the Women in Public Policy program is you're working across people from all of these different sectors. So you're seeing things that are happening in companies, in governments, in organizations, whether that be universities, whether that be nonprofit, you know, whether that be a private type of organization. And you're able to kind of weave through the most important things and bring us together as a network to really drive change. And so this is so powerful. Absolutely. It's important to us to, you know, just think about what's our comparative advantage being at Harvard, being at a research institution where we have access to all these different people who do amazing work across sectors and across disciplines. So yes, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you appreciate that. But the vision, as you said, so that's a more practical aspect, right? That mm-hmm. we're just in this landscape of lots of different organizations. That's our particular niche. So it's evidence and it's the cross-sectoral approach. But the vision is exactly the one that you have that I do not think we can make true and progress on gender equity unless we look at this intersectionally. And now I mean in every possible intersectional way. I mean, obviously the way we normally use it by race or age or parental status is also important, but intersectionally across countries, across sectors, including the home. We won't get gender equity at work if we don't get gender equity at home. Okay, now on to how Iris became interested in gender equity. I actually started out with political science, I should say. So I was really interested kind of in public life, in um, public decision making. And then I took a class in economics, an introductory class into microeconomics. And one of the models that the professor, male professor, discussed was a way of thinking that Gary Becker, who got the Nobel Prize in economics a while back, uh, was a professor at the University of Chicago, kind of introduced. And he really applied economic thinking to everything we do. So not just to what you normally think Mm -hmm. is economics, but any decision that you make and how you allocate work, how you spend your life, how you organize your marriage and everything. So in any case, one of the concepts is this concept of comparative advantage that was discussed. And the example that the professor gave was, you know, well, if you're in a marriage and you're in a cisgender relationship, you might have these different comparative advantages. So men might be better at filling out tax forms, might be better at handling the money, and women might have developed a expertise in ironing or, you know, doing laundry. And therefore, it's be rational to allocate the work that way. And for men to become better at finance and for women to become better at cleaning. And that was just like, oh my God, I see the logic of how, you know, if we have these this different comparative advantages, it is very hard for people who have that sort of speak the wrong comparative advantage to catch up. But what is that going to do to inequity? Not just gender inequity, mm-hmm. but more generally inequity. And that was a kind of an eye-opener for me. Is your blood boiling from that example? Mine certainly is. And so was Iris's at that time. 
I started as an angry person first, in many ways. But then got in- incredibly intrigued and moved to what now is called behavioral economics. And that's a combination of economics and psychology, where we learn from econ, but we also learn from psychology how real people behave. And that then kind of led me eventually after 10 years. So I didn't start out focusing on genders. I'd always kind of, you know, be interested in gender differences, but I didn't really see that the instruments that I have available could actually be deployed to help us overcome gender bias. Because gender bias and more generally biases are one of those insights from psychology that need to be incorporated into economics, that people aren't rational beings. They don't always follow the rational model of human behavior, but they make mistakes. And some of those mistakes are related to gender, some are related to race, and some have no component, you know, in terms of people's demographic characteristics. Wow. I do want to ask, because I'm I'm just a little nosy, what were you angry about? Because it seems like that was an accelerator. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. Yeah. I was angry because a model that kind of makes sense, right? Kind of saying, if I have specialized, you know, let's assume, let's take um, disciplines for an example. So some of us are engineers and some of us are economists like myself. So that's a comparative advantage. It's probably smarter if an engineer, computer scientist focuses on coding and I focus on other problems. So that's the idea of comparative advantage. So it, I think it's very intuitive. So we have these specializations for a reason. But it made me angry because what seemed like rational, I'm saying this in quotation marks, that idea of comparative advantage now was used to account for or maybe even justify differences in power between men and women. Because as it happens, men had more access to education and are still advantaged in our organizations, experience less gender bias when they want to climb up the career ladder. So then to say, okay, so at this moment of time, we're seeing most of our CEOs are men. Therefore, clearly men have a comparative advantage in being CEOs as compared to women, that made me angry, right? So that mm. was my maybe my early awakening to this concept or this difference between equality and equity. You know, I was speaking to a dear friend and mentor of mine. And one of the things that she shared with me, she has a dear friend and they talk often and they do this thing is, you know, like, what would I do if I became president? What's the first thing I would do if I became president? And her friend said, the first thing I would do if I became president is I would create a division that's different from the State Department, but a division totally focused on peace building. Mm. And so I said, I have to tell you this. I was just at the Harvard Kennedy Leadership Board meeting and the president of Kosovo was there and she is creating a center for peace building. She said, see, (laughs) that's the value that women bring. I loved her remarks and I 
also was impressed by her courage um, of, you know, the kinds of things that she's done, where her country is located at this moment in time, where they come from, you know, yes. with former Yugoslavia. And so it's just the, the, the history is almost overwhelming. So I thought, you know, independent of what she said, I thought she was just a very impressive leader. It is a fact that there are not enough female world leaders. President Viosa Osmani of Kosovo is in a minority. According to the UN, just 17 countries have a female head of state. But when women have the opportunity to lead, they do it differently. So at the negotiating table, women just traditionally have been underrepresented. So that's a relatively new stream of research also kind of focusing on gender and international security and you know those scholars focus on everything they also focus on maybe more traditional aspects of war but also particularly gendered components of war such as gender-based violence for Mm -hmm. example or rape as an instrument of war and they focus of course on um peace building, reconstruction. So there definitely is a lot of research suggesting that women lead more collaborative. I mean, that might be a different word to helping in that sense, but more collaboratively. I think that honestly, it's indeed the big question out there that I don't think anyone can really answer is whether this is by choice or by necessity. Mm. And, you know, let me explain what I mean with that. You know, by necessity, this is my co-director's work, Hannah Riley Bowles' work on them backlash. We'll hear from Hannah later this season. Showing that when women lead the way men lead or negotiate as assertively as their male counterparts, they're not liked as much. And so that's where these stereotypes about the good woman kind of kick in. So maybe, right, one theory is women have adjusted, women have adapted to the world that they live in. Yes, Yes. And we're not a monolith. And so where the research may go in one area, it doesn't mean that all women are that way. And we touched on it just a little bit. Gender equity. And you talked about the difference between equity and equality. And and now in our work, you know, diversity, equity and, and inclusion and now justice, people are talking about that all of those are different. So when we talk about gender equality versus gender equity, and I don't know if we're even using the term gender justice, but what are your thoughts on how we discern between the three in our work and how does it actually make a difference in the workplace? How can we bring more equity into the workplace to debias our organizations? So let me start with the first two, which I think are easier and more straightforward. I wrote a book a while back, What Works, and it's called What Works because I was passionate about trying to understand and show the reader what works to advance gender equity. The full title of Iris's book is What Works, Gender Equality by Design. My opening example, and you'll see how this leads to equity versus equality, my opening example in that book are orchestras in this country, symphony orchestras in the United States, that started to have musicians audition behind the curtain in the 70s. 
And that dramatically increased the fraction of women in our major symphony orchestras from about 5% in the 70s to now almost 40%. So that's, you know, in that sense, kind of a beautiful intervention. And a number of other organizations, including the UK government, for example, now uses this technique and removes names and identifiers from people's resumes to make sure that they focus on people's qualifications, competencies, and not what people look like. So that's a perfect example of an equality intervention, right? It creates more equal access, not perfect, but more equal access to work, and therefore has many, many advantages. But of course, it does not take into account injustices and inequities that happened beforehand. And that, I think, is where we, you know, now have to differentiate that if you were not afforded, for example, the opportunity to play an instrument in elementary school or in high school, you will not be applying for a job at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So that's a good example of how we have to do both. Um, We have to get better at equality and we have to get better at equity taking those accumulated disadvantages over time into account in our decision-making. There are so many different points where people face inequality. Equity can't be achieved through a few hiring changes. But Iris's orchestra example is an important one because it shows our implicit bias. So that, I think, for me, is this difference between equality and justice. Equality is equality of opportunity, incredibly important. We have to work on it. And equity is taking injustices that have happened beforehand into consideration. Yes. When we've talked about, and these are other chief diversity officers, DEI practitioners, about the justice piece, underscoring what you said, it's really about the system understanding some of the historical things and what we need to change so that people have access, so that people get what they need to be successful. So with your work in gender equity, what works? <laughs> what what works? What should we be thinking about top of mind now, Iris? as we try to fix organizations and and have organizations that work for everyone? Yes. No, I mean, obviously that is my favorite question. (laughs) And that's where my passion is. I Um, know. (laughs) (laughs) I do think, of course, you know, traditionally we have used more data and bigger in our marketing departments than in uh, HR or even more broadly in DEI. And so I'm a big proponent of equipping people like you and others who work in this space with the knowledge, expertise, data, resources, right? To have data scientists, for example, examine some of these problems. And that's where it really starts. I fear that we have been throwing money at the problem for too long without really dissecting mm-hmm. um, what works and what doesn't work. You know, also, I just want to put this down here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not asking every company, every organization, every government. I mean, governments maybe more, but <laughs> every organization to solve the world's problems, right? So it can be overwhelming for an individual company to say, oh my God, but, you know, all the schools issues and the criminal justice issues and the health issues and 
the issues at home and gender-based violence and there's so much that leads to injustice and inequity, you know, what can we do as with one little company? And that's where I think um, I come in and say, no, no, don't think about the system as just the system of the world or the system in this country or public policy, but the system in your organization, the systems in your organizations and change those. Iris has endless examples of research that shows small changes can get us closer and closer to closing gender gaps. We worked with a very large employer, one of the largest employers in Australia recently. They actually called us because they encountered an interesting problem. So they have people apply to jobs, obviously. So these are all leadership positions. And then they select somebody eventually but they are hoping that their finalists might reapply to other leadership jobs. And, you know, most people who are, of course, in HR have been in hiring roles. This will resonate with because we spend so much money, energy and time already on identifying this talent. It'd be great if they reapply to other kind of similar roles. And they found that men were about twice as likely to reapply. And that's when we came in. And they said, so what can we do? We're losing all this talent. Why are women not reapplying? And so we asked them a very simple question. We asked them, so who are you hoping will reapply? Who are these finalists? And they said, well, you know, we call the finalists, like the 20% top performers. These are our finalists. And so we said, well, tell them that. Nothing else. Just write them an email, an email that you would normally write where you say that was our control condition where you would say, you know, thank you for applying. Sorry, you didn't get the job, but we loved your application. Please reapply. So that was our control condition. And then change that for an experimental treatment group that gets an additional sentence. So same sentence, loved your application, pre-apply, but also tell them that you were top 20%. And it turns out we did a number of other things, but it turns out that that one sentence in an email already helped us close the gender gap in reapplications. Now, why is this working? Well, I have to speculate here, of course, because I don't know exactly what happened in people's minds, right? This is a bit like, just for our listeners to understand, the methodology that we use, we typically borrow that from the natural sciences. So think of clinical trials where we try to test the effectiveness of a drug. So we give some participants the drug and some um, study participants the placebo, and then we measure whether, in fact, the you know headache medication worked. That's exactly what we're doing in gender space, or more generally in the DEI space. We experiment, and so that was one of those experiments. So that's just for background why we do it this way. But then, of course, I don't know exactly what people are thinking. I just see the outcomes. So here I'm speculating now why we might have seen that closing of the gap. There's other research suggesting that generally men tend to be more overconfident than women. So if women were underconfident, that reassurance, right, that kind of more active step inviting them in might have helped them kind of be more courageous and reapply. Um, I should I, can I give you one more? Please give another example. I would love to also know. Are you planning to go back and actually ask those applicants that received the 20% that you were in the top 20%? Like, how did they feel? You know, I I would love to some of the little qualitative, but also maybe since you have a control group, 
did it make a difference to get the email that just said, please reapply? And, you know, were they more likely to reapply? So sometimes we can do qualitative, but, you know, in this case, we weren't able to do it. But let me give you maybe two more that I think might resonate because the second one is also something that individual listeners could think about doing. And that is to counteract the motherhood penalty. So there's lots of research, sadly, that there is this intersection between gender and whether or not you're a mother. And that in addition to the gender gaps that we typically find, there is a motherhood penalty because many employers look for commitment signals, for example, in people's resumes. And so a few of my um, co-authors, actually, I wasn't involved in that study, but a few of my co-authors ran a very interesting, very simple experiment where they changed how resumes are presented. And again, it was an experiment. So half of the resumes represented the way they normally are. So normally what we do in a resume, we basically say, I have worked, let's give a concrete example, as assistant manager of operations from July 2015 to June 2018, for example. And then it might say from... Uh, January 2021 to December 2023, I have been manager of operations. So for example, now are employers focused on years of experience or are they focused on those, what we sometimes call, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, career breaks. Hmm. And so what they did was they sent the same CV either with those dates included or alternatively, by focusing on the years of experience. So that would then say three years assistant manager operations. And it again turned out, so the dependent variable here is the likelihood that people are invited to an interview when they submit this type of resume. And it turns out that, again, it helped close gender gaps and it increased actually, which is quite beautiful, the likelihood that both female and male candidates would be invited to an interview by 15%. So that's another, you know, simple twist Mm -hmm. of things, kind of understanding how we make decisions, understanding how these biases can creep into our decision-making, adjusting there for the information we provide to recruiters. That's a, that's a great example. Iris, I'm curious, what, was some of the reasoning behind why women, I know this happens in, in what you saw with this particular example, women of color would have a lower self-evaluation of their performance. What's happening there and what intervention needs to happen for that not to continue? Sadly, some of us and women specifically, and then women of color even more have learned that they do experience more backlash from doing things that are normal for men. And that is including giving themselves, let's say, a 10 on a scale from 1 to 10. So I think that that is pretty well established, that there can be, and there's even a word for that, the double bind or double jeopardy, particularly for women of color. And so, yes, I do think, again, I would not say this is ingrained, Mm -hmm. but women and women of color have learned to respond to the world that we live in. So the bigger question really is, what do we do? And I think that's why, you know, I often talk about prevention and mitigation, right? 
prevention, and, and we can't always prevent, but then if we can't prevent, we have to mitigate. So mitigation is this calibration meeting, which is, you know, we let the process unfold. We let the self-evaluations kind of be shared with managers. Managers make up their minds and we, we find race and gender gaps and intersectionality gaps as we did in final evaluations. And then comes mitigation. It's not my first choice, but I'm just saying, if you don't want to do anything else, at least mitigate. At this point, then you can measure and you can send it back to your managers and say, this is not the kind of company we are. We do not believe that in our company, there can be systemic gender or race or intersectionality differences. And so fix that. And I think that's a doable proposition. Now, it'd be even lovelier, right, if we could prevent this whole thing from happening. And that's why I do like the idea of not sharing self-evaluations, because I know that it is a particular burden for women and women of color to even think about those self-evaluations, because they might want to give themselves a nine or 10, because they do think they were actually very strong performers this past year, but then they can't. And so I'd love to take that stress away, if at all, we can make it happen. I think that's an example of cultural norms in an organization and positive signaling that we want you to advance. We're supporting you in advancing. And to your point, minimizing backlash. I, I recently had a conversation with my team. I talk with them about their careers as much as possible all the time, but we do have cycles in the organization where we have career conversations. And it was important for me to signal because I try to think about all the things that held me back. I don't want to happen to the people on my team. And so I said, if you are interested in something else, I want you to know I will support you. I want you to grow. I don't want you to stay in your seat. I would love for us to work together forever. It's not reality. And so part of me being your manager or, or leader is to develop you to grow and go where you want to go. And so I don't want you to be shy or nervous to share with me. It will be in confidence. I will help you, support you on the plan. I need to know where you want to go. But I do think those cultural prompts of what you talked about that Laszlo was able to do is very important because for underrepresented groups, especially if you're the few, the only, you don't want to send the wrong signals. So it's important for the organization, to your point, to mitigate people having a fear of going out for opportunities that would impact their advancing in the organization. I'm so glad you're doing this. And I think it makes obvious another point, and that is that very often DEI work just is good management. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, let me explain that. I mean, you want to develop people, right? You want to invite people in. That's another way to say sending those, you know, right signals. And some people might need a bit more inviting in because it's riskier for them than for others. But again, often it's just good management. Think of um, meetings is another favorite place where I like to do research because they give me a glimpse into culture, but still are quantifiable. And of course, then the Zoom world or whatever technology we use to run our virtual meetings allowed us then to do many things that we couldn't do beforehand, such as measure how long somebody speaks and measure who speaks at what time, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it's very, very important that in those meetings, we send those right signals. All of Iris's research shows that intentional changes can have a big impact. So one company, for example, we worked with, you know, introduced a very simple rule during COVID, and that is virtual participants speak first. So that's for hybrid meetings, because they realize that it's incredibly hard. We've all been in hybrid meetings. It's very hard for online participants to really jump in. So again, this is a very simple rule. It's a bit of a behavioral trick because knowing that things will heat up and we will forget and I won't call on you. So let's make sure you talk first. And we have particular times in the meetings. If it's longer, after 20 minutes, for example, literally um, an alarm goes off where you call on the virtual participants again. So these are, you know, some of the tricks that can help us turn these virtuous intentions into actions and change the norms that we want to uphold. Another one that I have seen is for people to have something that earlier in, in the early literature, we call the devil's advocate, kind of in the room, like important meetings, you have somebody in the room who tells us why we're wrong and who kind of observes the meeting, that that person also becomes, so to speak, the cultural ambassador who pays attention to potential microaggressions, to moments where we might not have been given credit for a comment, who can then either intervene in the moment, although that does not always work, and I'm not even advising that we should always do that, but at least debrief then the group afterwards and say, here are the patterns that I have seen emerge, and is this something you want to subscribe to, or are there ways in which we can overcome that? And so one company then did something quite extreme that I'm not saying works them every time. And also I didn't evaluate it. I just watched it. They introduced red flags that they have on their conference tables and everyone takes a little red flag. They're tiny. And you raise the red flag literally when a transgression of the norms that you want to uphold has occurred. And, you know, observing, this is more qualitative than quantitative now, it did at least three things. One I did not expect at all, but the first one was, of course, it lowered the barrier to raising red flags. So people raised the red flags um, on themselves. Mm. But it also decreased the cost of experiencing the red flag as in, you know, oh my God, yes, I just referred to somebody who want to be addressed by a gender neutral or gender inclusive pronoun um, of he or she, for example. And, you know, things like that, but also other topics like microaggressions. But anyway, and then thirdly, what we saw that really surprised me, it brought humor to the meeting. And I thought that was a good thing that, you know, you could laugh at some of the mistakes that we make at our own and at others and kind of make this a collective journey and not vilify people, including yourselves, you know, yourself for making some of these mistakes because we do make them and we need to create the kind of safe space to grow together. I think that is an excellent way to end our conversation today. And Iris, thank you for all of the examples, which we can try. Their calls to action on simple things can work. Piloting can work. But if we don't start, we can't improve, right? So I appreciate everything that that you do, all of the work, but thank you again. And I look forward to seeing you at our next meeting. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. 
Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. To learn more about Iris Bonet, check out the links in our show notes. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. The link is in our show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take the time to rate and leave our show a review. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show. That's it for today's episode. I hope you join me in the next one.